All right, well, welcome to uh, Grace on this Browns-Steelers weekend. Anyone excited about that? All right, a couple of us, real good. Go Browns, we'll see how that goes for us today. And uh, man, if we can just get by with having a small margin of loss, I consider that a win, and that's a good thing. But go Browns, excited about that. Hey, uh, so thankful to have you all here with us at Grace this morning. If you're a guest with us, like Steve mentioned just a moment ago, we really do just wanna extend a very, very, very special welcome to you. Thank you for being our guest. We hope you feel welcome because you are welcome. And uh, so, so glad you're able to be with us. Hopefully you'll get a chance to stick around for a little bit afterwards. Um, we would love to hear your story. I would love to hear your story, how you got here to Grace. And uh, so if you don't have to leave too quick, just stick around for a little bit, maybe meet somebody, somebody new. So if you are just joining us uh, here this week at Grace, you're actually catching us in the second week of a series that we started last week that we're calling Uncomfortable. Uh, we're calling it Uncomfortable. And so if you're just hearing this for the first time, it's probably a little bit of an intriguing title, uh, Uncomfortable. Uh, what do we mean by that? Well, what we're doing in this series is we're actually talking through what we said is a very, very important statement that we're going to be kind of talking about for the next several weeks. And here's that statement that we're looking at together. We looked at it last week, but here it is again. It's this statement right here, that when the people of God become uncomfortable for the things of God, it unleashes the power of God, and we join the unstoppable movement of God. Because that's the, the kind of the sentence that we're looking at together, this statement that we're sort of looking at for the next several weeks. And in fact, just to make you feel a little uncomfortable, because that is the name of the series, I want to ask you if you would again, maybe just say this out loud with me, this statement right here. Okay, so we did this last week. Let's try it again. Can we do that? You guys want to repeat after me? Let's try it together. So here we go. You ready? When the people of God, people of God become uncomfortable for the things of God, God, it unleashes the power of God. And we join the unstoppable movement of God. Excellent. Thank you. I promise I won't have you do that every week. Uh, but the reason that we're starting to go through that statement together is because we said that this is actually a very important statement because it reflects a pattern that we see all throughout the Bible. And not only a pattern that we see throughout the Bible, but we believe that this is also an invitation that is extended to every single one of us. That when the people of God, those who follow Jesus, and by the way, I'm very much aware that not everyone in this room maybe follows Jesus. Some of you might still be investigating all of that. But when the people of God, when those of us who follow Jesus deliberately and willingly make ourselves uncomfortable for the things of God, it actually unleashes God's power in our lives and in our world and we get to participate, we get to take part in an unstoppable movement that God is accomplishing here on this earth. And so when the people of God become uncomfortable for the things of God and unleashes the power of God, and we get to take part in an unstoppable movement of God. And so what we're doing in this series then is we're actually taking some time to talk about this first part. What does it mean for the people of God to be uncomfortable for the things of God? Practically speaking, what does that look like? And how do we, for those of us who follow Jesus, how do we become uncomfortable for the things of God? Now, last week, if you were with us, you might remember we uh, introduced this whole conversation and we had a, a kind of an introductory uh, sort of beginning to this whole thing. We talked about what is the heart behind being uncomfortable for God? What does that look like? And so I would really encourage you, by the way, if you missed last week's conversation, you can go back onto our website, onto our app, you can go to um, our, um, also onto our podcast, listen to that, it's all for free. I would encourage you to do that because last week we laid a very important foundation 
that the rest of this conversation is gonna be built on. But what we're gonna do today is we wanna talk about one very practical aspect of what does it mean to be uncomfortable for the things of God. And so here's what we're gonna talk about today. We're gonna talk about one way that we can do this, one way that we can practically make ourselves uncomfortable for the things of God. And today we're gonna talk about the idea of embracing something that we're gonna be calling the uncomfortable family. How do we make ourselves uncomfortable for the things of God, for those of us who follow Jesus? Well, today we're gonna talk about one of the ways that we do that, is to embrace something that we're calling the uncomfortable family, the uncomfortable family. Now, you might be thinking, what does that mean? What does that look like? What are you talking about? Well, that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time talking about today. And so uh, the way we're going to do that is if you've got your Bibles, why don't you take them with me? And we're going to go to Acts chapter 2. Okay, so we're going to look at a passage of Scripture to kind of process through this idea of the uncomfortable family. Acts chapter 2 is where we're going to go together. So grab your Bibles and get to Acts 2. By the way, if you don't have a Bible of your own or if you don't have a Bible app on your phone or on your device, feel free to use one of our Bibles that are laid out there for you. Page 759 is where you're going to find Acts chapter 2 in those Bibles. And then also let me just say that if you don't physically own a copy of the Bible, we would love for you to take one of ours and you can just have one and we'd love for you to have a Bible. So Acts 2. Now as you're finding Acts chapter 2, let me just kind of clarify a little bit of what I mean when I say the uncomfortable family. What am I referring to when I'm talking about that? Well, what I'm referring to is I'm actually talking about an image that is used frequently throughout the New Testament of the Bible to describe those who follow Jesus. Okay? And here's what I mean by that. All throughout the Bible, all throughout the New Testament, the Bible explains that when a person puts their faith in Jesus Christ, when a person becomes a Christian, that they actually become part of something the Bible calls God's family. Okay? God's family. Now, like I said, you're going to find this. If you're a Bible person, you've probably noticed this. This imagery is used all throughout the New Testament. And so the Bible says that when a person puts their hope and their faith in Jesus Christ, when you become a Christ follower, something changes in your identity and you actually become part of the family of God. So let me give you a couple examples of what I'm talking about. So in the book of John, for example, John writes these words. He says, but to those who receive Jesus, him, to those who believe in his name, he gave them the power to become the children of God. And so the Bible, again, here's what it says, that when we put our faith in Christ and we trust him, that we, we have the right now to become children of God. Some passages in the Bible say that we are adopted into his family. And so we are now put into God's family. Because of this, the Bible actually says that now those who follow Jesus, disciples of Jesus, are now to address God as father. And so for those of us who believe in, in, in Christ, the Bible says we now have the right to call God our father, which is crazy if you think about it. That's why Jesus um, tells his disciples, when you pray, I want you to pray like this, our Father, who art in heaven, right? The Bible says over and over again in the New Testament that followers of Jesus are to call God, we can address God as our Father. Why? Because we are his children. We have now been brought into his family. We are part of God's family. What that also means is it not only means that we're God's children, that he's our Father, but here's what it means about you and I who follow Jesus. It means that we're siblings. By necessity, because we share the same spiritual father, we are brothers and sisters, And so all throughout the New Testament, you're going to see the Bible calls those who follow Jesus brothers and sisters. In fact, even if you're not a religious person or you're not a Bible person or maybe you're not a church person, you've probably heard Christians use this terminology before, right? Where they say, that's my brother in Christ. That's my sister in Christ. Now, what are they talking about? Well, this is what they're talking about. We're part of a family together. God is our father. And now we share this corporate identity that we are now brothers and sisters um, in Christ. In fact, I don't know if you knew this. There are 210 verses from the book of Acts to the book of Revelation that refer to those of us who follow Jesus as brothers and sisters. 
And so it's pretty clear that in the Bible, the early church viewed this as a pretty key part of their identity. Uh, we are part of God's family. And, and let, me, let me just kind of clarify here, by the way. When the Bible talks about God's family, it's not talking about some kind of strange, cozy feeling, mystical feeling that comes over a group of people where all of a sudden we just get warm fuzzies and want to get around a fire and sing kumbaya. That's not what it's referring to, okay? It is actually referring to something that is very true about your identity if you follow Christ. It is talking about something that is an eternal part of who you are now. Uh, You are part of God's family. He is your father. That makes us siblings. And that is an eternal reality that is now true about those of us who follow Jesus. And so when the Bible calls us family, it's not just talking about a feeling. What it's actually talking about is it's calling us to the type of community and the type of commitment that we are to experience with each other. The type of community and the type of commitment that you and I who follow Jesus are to experience together. So, so here's what I wanna do with the rest of the time that we have together. I wanna talk about this idea of what it means to be God's family. And I wanna speak specifically on three headings. Okay, so let me just tell you, if you need a roadmap of what we're talking about today, let me give you a roadmap. Here's the three things that I wanna talk through today. First, I wanna talk about a picture of the family. So in other words, what I wanna do is I wanna, you know, I wanna give us a very practical picture. Okay, so if we follow Jesus, we're family. Practically speaking, what does that mean? What does that look like in real life, right? How do we interact if this is true about us? So I wanna give you a picture, give you a snapshot, give you a portrait. This is what that looks like. Then I wanna talk about the problem, the problem of family, because every family has problems. So we're gonna talk about the problem of family. And then I wanna end by talking about the power of family. Okay, so pretty simple, picture, problem, power. Sound good to you? All right, let's start right at the top, and let's start by talking about a picture of the family. So without a doubt, most commentators would agree that probably the most beautiful picture that we have in all of the Bible of the type of commitment and the type of community that God's family share together is found in Acts chapter 2. What we're going to see here in Acts chapter 2 is quite honestly one of the most beautiful pictures. In fact, I would even say it is the most beautiful picture of what Christian community between brothers and sisters in Christ can really look like. It is an amazing, amazing portrait. We're gonna look at it here together in Acts 2. We're gonna start off in verse 42, but before we look at it, let me just give you a really small amount of context. Here's what you need to know about Acts 2. Acts 2 is day one of the church, okay? So the church begins in Acts 2. The church as we know it, all of it begins right there in Acts 2. And here's here's what happens. Jesus was crucified, he rose from the dead, And then the Bible says that in Acts chapter two, there was a group of about 500 people who believed in Jesus who were gathered together and the Holy Spirit descended on this group in Acts chapter two in a way that he had never done before. And the Bible says that Peter, one of the disciples, got up and he preached a sermon. And as a result of it, 3,000 people came to know Christ in one day. And that was the beginning of the church. Now, most of these people were from different parts of the world. They were together for a celebration called Pentecost. And so these people were formerly strangers Now they started following Jesus. They started to grab their identity as a family. And then at the end of Acts, it gives us a window. It gives us a picture into what life with this early church looked like. And so let's take a look at it. Here's the picture, starting off in verse 42. It says, they, that's these early Christians, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. 
They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. Again, they were together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And so here you have it. Once again, like I said, one of the most beautiful pictures in all of the Bible of what this level of commitment and what this level of community looks like. It's one of the most beautiful pictures of the family of God. In fact, I thought just to kind of get our mind around sort of what's happening here, why don't we just take a minute, let's highlight some of the key features, some of the key characteristics of this group. So I want you to notice a couple things. First off, notice the Bible says that this was a group of people that was devoted. They, they devoted themselves, the Bible says, to the apostles' teaching. And what did that mean? That meant this is a group, this was a group that didn't just get together and just share chips and dips. That wasn't kind of the whole thing. The thing was they were centered around something. What were they centered around? They were centered around the apostles' teaching. Uh, by the way, the apostles, some of you guys might remember this, these were the guys who would have followed Jesus. And so when the Bible says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, what that meant was they devoted themselves to learning about Jesus and the things of Jesus, right? In other words, they were dedicated to knowing the word of God. Uh, the apostles, by the way, are the same guys who wrote the New Testament that we have. And so when we study the New Testament, we are studying the apostles' teaching. We're doing the same thing that these people did back in this time. So what I want you to understand is this is a group of people that was devoted to truth. They were devoted to learning what Jesus said. They were devoted to learning the words of God. This wasn't, this wasn't an ignorant group. This wasn't a low-commitment group. Uh, this wasn't a group of people who took it flippantly. They, they took it seriously, and, and they were a learning group who had a strong commitment to understanding what the Bible said about the things of God. They committed themselves to the apostles' teaching. Notice this. This is a group of people that was devoted to, look at this right here, fellowship. Fellowship. Now, I don't know about you, but the word fellowship to me has always seemed like kind of a, sort of a churchy word, right? And I know for me, I, I started following Jesus when I was about 17 years old. And when I started following Jesus, I started to hear this word, the word fellowship. Christians would use this word. I didn't really know what it meant. I remember the church I started going to, we had a fellowship hall. Do you guys ever grow up going to a church that had a fellowship hall? So our fellowship hall was a room in the basement where they would serve red punch and donuts and it kind of smelled like mothballs. And that was, the, that was the fellowship hall, right? And you go to the hall to fellowship. And I didn't really understand what it meant, but I remember I would hear Christians use this word and they'd be like, hey, we're gonna go to Brother Bill's this afternoon. We're gonna have a bonfire. We're gonna have some fellowship. How about some, fe we're gonna get together. We're gonna have some fellowship. Martha and the ladies are gonna get together. They're gonna quilt. And they're gonna have some, they're gonna enjoy some fellowship. We wanna have some fellowship. We just want some nice quality fellowship, right? You should turn next to someone and just say fellowship. Just go ahead and do it. I know you want to, right? And all I'm saying is for me, I remember I would hear this word and people would be like, do you wanna come over for some fellowship? And I was like, no, I don't. I don't know what that is. And it freaks me out. And quite honestly, the only time I've ever heard that word is here and in the Lord of the Rings. And that's it, right? And uh, so it's kind of a churchy word. It's weird, but, but actually, this is actually a really powerful word. If you go back to the Greek language, the word fellowship literally is the word koinonia. It's the word koinonia. What it means is it means to have in common or to share. It's a, it's a very profound word. And basically what it means is this was a group of people who was devoted. They were devoted to sharing a common commitment to Jesus, to sharing their life in Christ together. This was a group of people, listen, some people get together to share a drink, some people get together to share a meal. These people would share life. Right, this was, we are sharing our common life in Jesus with each other. We're gonna help each other know Jesus. We're gonna help each other follow him. 
We're committed to that with one another. We're gonna share a common commitment to each other and a common commitment to Christ, right? That's what this group was experiencing. And so they, had, they, devote, they were devoted to the teaching, to the fellowship, look at this, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Uh, the breaking of bread, some of you might be thinking, does that mean like they ate together? Well, we know they ate together. The Bible actually says that later. They ate together a lot. But actually, most likely, when the Bible says that they were devoted to breaking of bread, that's probably referring to communion, and some of you might know communion is a spiritual act of remembrance, something you do to remember the sacrifice of Jesus. So this was a group of people that was committed to reflecting on what Jesus had done for them, uh, purposefully uh, remembering the sacrifice of Christ. This was a, a group of people that was committed to prayer. They would pray a lot. They would pray for each other. They would pray with each other. And when we look in the book of Acts, we see that they prayed for their government. They prayed for their world, their society. They prayed for each other. They prayed a lot, prayed a lot. And so here you have this group of people, get the picture, right? This is a group of people who are sharing a common life in Jesus with each other. What you know is a few other characteristics. Check this out. This is a group of people that had a fellowship that surpassed one building structure, surpassed one building structure. The Bible says this was a group that would get together in temple courts. So the temple courts uh, in these times, that was a large group gathering space. If you ever wanted to gather with a large group, you would go to the temple courts to do that. So that's a lot like what we're doing right now, right? We come together in a large group setting to learn from what the Bible teaches, what the apostles' teachings in the New Testament. That's what they would have done. But notice, they didn't just do that. They also would get together in their homes. So it's pretty common for the, these people to be engaged in each other's homes, to share meals and those type of things. They, they had a fellowship that surpassed one building structure. I think that, uh, that this is real important because, uh, as you guys know, in Western culture, specifically in our country, we tend to associate church with a building, right? We tend to associate with, with, with one large gathering space. But that's really not the way these people would have thought about it. They wouldn't have thought about it that way. They would have thought that the people are the church, and sometimes we gather in big masses like this, but sometimes we gather together in our homes. This, by the way, is a big reason why here at Grace we enjoy and we celebrate and encourage things like life group. That's why we do it. Life groups are groups that meet in people's homes. And we get together and we, we do a lot of the things that we're talking about right here. And the reason we think that's so important and so significant in a person's life is because we recognize that to be part of God's family means that there's a fellowship that surpasses one building structure. You also notice this, check this out. They had a faith that surpassed uh, one building structure. They had a fellowship that surpassed one day a week. Surpassed one day. The Bible says every day, every day, these people were spending time together. They were meeting together. Uh, some of you might have different translations. It might say day by day, day by day. Here's the idea, whether it was literally every day or the idea was that they were together most days, these guys spent a lot of time together. I don't think all 3,000 of them spent every day together, but the idea is, man, they were in each other's lives and they would be at each other's houses and maybe one day they were at a prayer meeting and maybe the next day they were doing some kind of Bible study. Maybe the next day they were at a, a large group thing and they were learning or whatever it might look like, but you just get the sense. I think when you read this, you get the impression that what you see in this group is that this was a group of people who didn't view following Jesus as just an addition to their already busy lives. I think what you see is when they started to follow Jesus, it was a radical reprioritization of everything. In fact, you notice, look what the Bible says. The Bible says that they, they sold property and possessions and they would give to anyone who had need. This is a group of people who, because they started following Jesus, they started to look at their stuff different. They started to look at their calendar different. They started to look at their lives different. 
they started to look at their community. And why is that? Because they started to recognize the community and commitment of what it meant to be part of the family of God. And here's what I think is so crucial. I want you to notice this. The Bible says that when all this was happening among this group of people, that it was happening with glad and sincere hearts. In other words, it was happening with authenticity. Um, I think this is really crucial because what this is telling us is that this was not something that was forced upon these people. This was not something that was guilt-tripped guilt on them, right, by the apostles. That's not what this was. This wasn't communism. We can read this and think, oh, that's communism. Yeah, but the difference is communism is forced. This was not forced. This was something that willingly happened among this group of people who owned what it meant to be part of the family of God. And so here you have, and I mean, we can go on and on and on, but I think here we have, if you look at it, man, one of the most beautiful pictures of what it looks like to be part of the family of God, that level of commitment and that level of community. It's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful picture we have in scripture. In fact, like I said, I think it's the most, the most compelling picture of what biblical community looks like in all of the Bible. But I think, here's what I think, I think that when we read this, it actually leads us to the second thing. And the second thing is this, it's the problem of family. I think it leads us to the problem of family. Now, what do I mean when I say the problem of family? Well, here's what I'm referring to. I think that when we read this picture of Acts chapter two, what it does is, is for many of us, we look at it and we think, wow, that's awesome. Wow, that's really beautiful. We might even think to ourselves, boy, I wish I could be, something, be part of something like that. That sounds like it's really awesome. But the problem is this, is that we look at what Acts two says, and then I think for many of us, we look at what our experience has been following Jesus, and we would say that it looks, for most of us, we'd say it actually looks nothing like that. I would say there's probably few of us in this room that would say that we've ever experienced anything like what we see in Acts chapter two. And I think what it does is it creates a problem because we say, we look at that picture and we say, well, sure, that was nice and that was beautiful and that was wonderful, but come on, let's face it, that was for those people back then. We could never experience anything like that today. And come on, let's just be honest, that's idealistic, but it's not what reality looks like. It sort of reminds me of, do you guys ever see those pictures, the expectation versus reality pictures? I think those are so funny. Um, they kind of look something like this, right? They give you a picture of what you expect. It's like the ideal. This is what it should look like. And then it's like, no, this is what it really looks like. And uh, there's a bunch of these different things on the internet. They're pretty funny. Um, but what I, I think what can happen, here's the problem. When we read Acts 2, we can say, well, yeah, sure, that's the expectation. Yeah, sure, that's, that's very idealistic. But come on, let's be honest. Here's what it really looks like, Right? It's, it's really a lot messy. It's not perfect. It doesn't come together that way. And it can create a big problem. And I think what it does is it forces us to ask this really important question. And here's the question it forces us to ask. Is this even possible for us today? All right, what we're reading in Acts 2, is that possible? Is that possible? Honestly, realistically, is it possible for us to experience anything like what we see in Acts 2? Well, I think it's a good question. I think it's worth considering. Let's think about it for a minute. I actually came up with a little bit of a chart that I think helps us kind of diagram a little bit. What was the circumstances back then? And what are the circumstances now? And what are some of the big differences? All right, so let's just think through it a little bit. Well, back then in Acts chapter two, uh, the Bible's pretty clear that God was God. And uh, God was powerful, mighty. And when a person was transformed by the power of God, they were adopted into his family that would utterly change a person's life and it would utterly change their identity. And so I think back then we saw the power of God was just, it was powerful and people were transformed. Well, today, um, yeah, God's still God and God is still powerful 
And when a person interacts with him and is transformed by him, their identity is changed and they become a child of God just like they did back then. Uh, Back then in Acts chapter two, Christians had the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's pretty clear. You read Acts two, it's pretty clear that the Holy Spirit was the one who caused this community to happen. It was a result of an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Well, today, you know, we still have the Holy Spirit. Still have the same spirit. For those of us who follow Jesus, the Bible says that when we put our faith in Christ, we are indwelt by the same spirit of God uh, that we have him, right? Back then, people were imperfect. Uh, Today, uh, people are still imperfect. We're still imperfect people. And so you had a group of imperfect people trying to follow a perfect God. That situation is still happening today. So back then, here's a big difference. Back then, there was 24 hours in a day. And... uh, now, it's totally different. We only have 24 hours in a day. Now, you guys get the idea. I'm being a little facetious. And the reason I'm being a little facetious is here's the point I'm trying to make. What is it that's hindering us from experiencing something like this? Well, can I tell you what it's not? It's not God. It's not God. It's not the Holy Spirit. In fact, I, I'm very convinced that the reason that God has preserved this picture for us in Acts chapter 2 is not because he's just trying to tell us about some cool thing that happened a long time ago. I think the reason that God has preserved this for us is because he wants to give us a vision of what's possible in a group of people who own their identity in being the family of God. So it's not God, it's not the Holy Spirit, it's not the people. It's not like back then people were somehow more spiritual and perfect than we are. No, 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 these were imperfect people who were trying to follow a perfect God. Just They were average people, just like you and I. Back in this time, it wasn't time. Time wasn't the issue. Time wasn't the issue. In fact, I was reading one historian. I thought this was really fascinating. One of the historians I was reading said that back in these times, it was most probable that the average person would work 12 hours a day, six days a week. It's pretty normal for people back in that time. These were, they were busy, just like we're busy. Everybody's busy, but yet they still had the same 24-hour time period that all of us have. So the question then is this. What is it then? What is it? that hinders those of us who follow Jesus from experiencing something like we see here in Acts 2. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll just give you four, four suggestions. I think there's probably more than that, but I think here's four common hindrances that maybe keep us from something like this. So here's one. First one I, I, I put is this. I think that one of the things that might be keeping us from this is a reluctance to embrace the uncomfortable. Just like the title of this series, I think that among Christ followers, sometimes there is a reluctance to engage and embrace the things that are uncomfortable to us in following Jesus. I think that um, a big part of understanding what these people experience in in Acts 2 actually comes in understanding a very important word. And let me just show it to you real quick. It is this word right here. It is the word devoted, the word devoted. It's actually a really powerful word. All commentators agree that this word is like a linchpin in this verse, that devoted is actually one of the central terms in this whole thing. Because the Bible says they were devoted to the teaching, they were devoted to the fellowship, they were devoted to the breaking of bread, they were devoted to prayer. And this word is a very strong word. Let me tell you what it literally means. The word devoted literally means to be steadfastly attentive to something. That's what it means. It literally means to persist obstinately. Here's what it means. It means to give unremitting care to a thing. Here's what it means. It means to continue all the time to persevere, not grow faint. You get the idea? What does it mean to be devoted? Here's what it means. It means, man, we are going at it. It means that we're going for it and and we're unremitting and we're steadfast and we're committed to this thing. 
And even sometimes it doesn't feel good, and even sometimes it's uncomfortable. We're gonna push through it. We're gonna get, we're, we're gonna be steadfast. We're gonna be persistent in pursuing this thing, devoted to it, devoted. And here's what I think sometimes keeps us from experiencing what they experienced, quite honestly. I think it's that we're unwilling and sometimes we are reluctant to be devoted to totally going after these things like this group of people was going after these things. Listen, here's the thing. We all know this. We all know this. It's nothing new. All of us understand that if you wanna grow at something, anything in life, it requires devotion, right? If you wanna grow in your career, if you, wanna, if you wanna excel at your golf game, if you wanna learn a musical instrument, if you have fitness goals, all of us understand that if you wanna achieve those things and if you wanna get to the ideal, it's gonna require devotion. You're gonna have to be steadfast. You're gonna have to p- push through. You're gonna, be, you're gonna have to will, be willing to make yourself uncomfortable in order to achieve growth in that area. And here's the problem sometimes when it, as it relates to following Jesus. For some of us who follow Christ, we look at uncomfortable things as something to be avoided rather than something to be embraced as an opportunity for growth. And I can just tell you, as a follower of Jesus, and my guess is if you follow Christ, you would agree with me on this, Every major season of growth that I've ever experienced as a Christian has been directly correlated to a season where, I was, where I've been uncomfortable. In fact, I'll tell, you, I'll tell it to you this way. The times I've been most uncomfortable for God are the times I've grown the most. I'll even put it this way. I'll put it this way. The times I've been the most comfortable in my faith and in my walk with God have been the times I've grown the least. They've been the times I've been most stagnant. And my guess is if I asked you the same question for anyone who follows Jesus, you would tell me the same thing. I was actually recounting this. I was thinking back in my walk with Jesus and I started to think about all the major seasons of growth. I remember when I first started following Jesus, I was 17 and I had a leader come up to me and he asked me if I'd be willing to pray out loud. And that was so terrifying to me. And I remember I was like, I was, I was sweating and I, and I was like, I was so uncomfortable but yet I did it. I was like, you know what? I feel like I, feel like I wanna grow and I do wanna know Jesus more and I feel like this is an important step and so I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna do it. And I did it. And I'm just telling you, I remember that season, I grew. I just grew a lot spiritually. I remember um, first time I went to a, a biblical community, to a life group. We call them life groups here. I remember the first time I did that. Went to someone's house I didn't know. That's awkward. It's awkward, right? Um, it was scary. I'm an introvert. I remember going in and there was people and we were sitting around in the kitchen and making small talk and I'm not good at small talk. I'm just sitting there and I'm like, okay, you know, and we sat through the thing. And, but I just remember thinking, I, I just remember thinking to myself, this is, this, is, this is important. This is important. And I kept coming and I kept going. I was devoted to it. And those people became like family to me. Became like family. And I grew and I grew as a result of that. I remember the first time I shared my faith. Oh my gosh, it was so terrifying, so uncomfortable. My gosh, did I grow. I grew so much that. I remember the first time I started studying the Bible. Um, I remember there was a Bible class that was offered, kind of like the equipping division classes that we're offering right now, these high-level Bible training classes. I remember I, I, I was like, I wanna learn the Bible. And so I started taking this class and I remember I was, it was so stretching. I was so out of my, I didn't know anything about the Bible. I felt like the biggest idiot sitting in this class. I was telling you, I grew, I grew. And, and as I pushed through it, as I pushed through that season, it was such a season of growth that God, yeah. the first time I, I was challenged to teach, oh my gosh, I was so scared, so scared. Still scares me to do that. But man, I just, I, you've got, and all I'm saying is, 
I think all of us understand this, that to grow in anything, you gotta be willing to embrace what's uncomfortable. You gotta be devoted to it. We're gonna push through, not a low commitment, a high commitment. We're gonna go for it, man. We're gonna push through this. And I can tell you, I think that this group was a group that experienced what they experienced part in part because they had this. And they had a commitment to embrace the uncomfortable things and to be willing to really push through to experience the things that mattered, right? They valued this very highly. And as a result of that, we get to see the fruit, right? And what was the fruit? Well, the fruit is these people were experiencing like level three relationships. You guys ever heard that phrase before, level three relationships? So think about it for a minute. There's three levels of relationships. Level one, that's like surfacey stuff, right? That's like small talk, surface talk. That's like we're talking about the browns, we're talking about the weather, we're sharing, you know, my grandma's cupcake recipe or whatever it might be. And, and listen, some people are really good at this level. In fact, real quick, how many of you are good at level one conversation? You're just like, I'm good at small talk. How many of you would say that? Yeah, so, some people are really, really good at this. And I'm just telling you, this is, level one is important. It's very important. Because it's how you feel warm to people. It's how you, uh, you kind of connect on a surface level. It's very important. And there's level two. What's level two? Here's level two relationships. Level two relationships are, now we're going a little bit deeper. We're exchanging information about each other. So this is, my, this is where I work. This is my career. These are my hobbies. These are my interests. These are my opinions. It's an exchange of information for the most part. That's level two. But then here's the thing. Then there's level three. Level three. What's level three? Well, level three is now we're not just exchanging information about each other, but we're actually, we're actually connecting in a deeper way, oftentimes on a soul level. Right? This is, this is the, and if you've ever experienced this, you know the power of this. This is, this is um, man, I'm, I'm gonna share, we're gonna talk about what we're, what we're processing and through in life. We're gonna share our burdens with each other. I'm gonna confess my struggles to you. And, and we're gonna pray with each other and we're gonna try to share a common life in Jesus together. That's, this is level three stuff. And I'm just telling you, if you've never experienced level three relationships, I believe what God wants for us is he wants us to have some level three relationships with other people who follow Jesus. Now, not with everybody, not with everybody, but it's gotta be with some people. You gotta have that. I think that's what God wants for us, right? Did you know there's over 50 one another commandments in the Bible that are given by the apostle Paul, by the apostles, by Jesus himself, that are impossible to obey aside from level three relationships with each other. Things like bear one another's burdens, confess your sins to one another. You can't do that outside of relationships that are on this level. Now, some of you, you're hearing me talk about that and you're thinking to yourself, man, I want that. I really want that. How do I get that? Well, can I give you some tips? Got a couple tips. Here's tip number one. Tip number one is if you want level three relationships, you can't rush it. You can't force it and you can't rush it. So what I mean is if you're like, boy, I want to get to level three, so I'm just going to do it. I'm going to go right out to the cafe today. I'm going to find someone. I'm going to be like, hey, look at this crazy verse I found this past week. It reminded me of this really embarrassing sin issue I have. Can I tell you all about that right now while you're drinking your coffee? Don't do that. It's weird. All right? And people are going to think there's something wrong with you and they're going to avoid you at all costs. So if you think that the way to get to level three is that you just make a beeline to someone out in the cafe and just get right to it, that's not how it works. It does not work that way. Stuff takes some time. So what do you need to do? Well, here, how about this? Here's a good step for you. Get in a life group. Get in a life group. Um, listen, we talk about this all the time. If you're not in a life group, you should get in a life group. If you're not connected to biblical community, you're getting less than half of what Grace Church has to offer. That's just true. 
And I could just tell you, I think this is really interesting. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine, and he, he said, he's a church leader, and he said something I thought was really interesting, and I actually found it to be very true in our situation too. And basically what he said is this, and I'll just, I'll contextualize it for us. If you've been coming here for six months to Grace Church, and you have not yet got connected to a life group or to a biblical community, in the next six months, chances are good you're not going to be here anymore. Or if you are here, it's going to be super nominal. Like it's not going to be very, very consistent and not in a meaningful way. And I just remember when I heard my friend say that, I thought, you know what, that is exactly what we've experienced here. Now, there are some exceptions to the rule, but by and large, man, if you've been coming for six months and you haven't gotten connected in a deeper way to other people who follow, chances are good six months from now, you're not going to be here anymore. And some of you are like, no, no, not me, not me. I'm the Christian ninja. You guys remember the ninja conversation, the one who slips in service and then slips out without anyone knowing? I don't know what's going on with my leg. But that's like the ninja, you know what I'm talking about? Some of you are like, I'm just going to do that forever. All right, well, trend analysis says otherwise. And I don't think it's real great for your spiritual health and for your spiritual growth, quite honestly, right? So I would encourage you, man, get in a life group. Check it out. Get connected to one of those things because it's a great way to take those steps. And be devoted to it. Be devoted to it. It can't be one of those things where it's like, nah, I kind of feel like it tonight, kind of don't. Uh, there's got to be some kind of steadfast commitment to something like that in order to see this happen, I think, right? So what keeps us from it? Well, I think a reluctance to embrace the uncomfortable is, is big. How about this one? Uh, insecurity. Yeah, that'll do it. That'll keep us from this, I think. Fear and insecurity. Some of you might identify with this. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, man, that sounds like it'd be awesome to be part of something like that. But quite honestly, I am so scared that if people actually get to know me, if I actually get close to people, they're gonna see the real me. And if they see the real me, they're gonna know what I struggle with. They're gonna know I got doubts. They're gonna know that I, got, I, I struggle with my faith. And, and man, I, I, just, I just don't know if I'll be accepted. And so for some of us, there's a lot of insecurity and a lot of fear that's keeping us from embracing on this level. I'll just tell you this much. I've been a pastor at this church long enough that I've had a conversation with so many people that has went something like this, and you might identify with this. I've talked to so many people who have said something to this effect. They said, man, I feel, sometimes I feel like, like I'm an unspiritual person in the midst of some very spiritual people. And so I talk to people and they'll say, I look around the room and I see all these beautiful people, which by the way, you guys are all beautiful, right? And they're like, and they're all so nice and they all have these wonderful families and everyone looks so put together and everyone seems like they really love God and they're really, and like, man, I'm just saying, if you would know me, you know, I'm not like that. And I wish I was half as spiritual as the people in this room. And I struggle, man, and I got doubts, and I got struggles. And if you guys knew the reality about me, you would understand. And I'm just saying, listen, if you resonate with that, if you can identify with that feeling, can I just tell you something right now? It's a mirage. You know what a mirage is? We know what a mirage is, right? Something that when you get close to it, it disappears. And that is exactly true about that. And I'm just telling you right now, you get close to any single person in this church, including the guy on the stage, especially the guy on the stage, you're gonna find out real quick that there's a lot of struggle. And you're gonna find out real quick that there were, we're, we are a bunch of imperfect people who are trying to follow a perfect God. And some of you are like, but you don't know what I've done and you don't know where I've been. And if you knew what I've done and you, I'm just saying, we've seen it all. We've seen it all. The people here, some of the people that go here, they, they root for the Steelers. Right, we've seen, we've seen it all, yeah, and, and, and they, admittedly so, right? We're praying for you guys, right? But I'm just saying, it's a mirage, it's a mirage. We are a bunch of imperfect people, and here's the thing. If your struggle, if your insecurity and your fear is the thing that's keeping you from engaging on this, 
Could it be that the very thing that God wants to use to heal you of that struggle or that addiction or that sin issue or that insecurity is the very thing you're resisting? I'm just telling you, one of the greatest graces God has given us is community. And when we come into the family of God, many times that's where healing is found. But it doesn't come quick and it doesn't come easy. So it requires devotion. So insecurity, yep. Well, this one, uh, radical individualism. Yeah, that'll do it. That'll keep us from something like this. Without a doubt, all of us know we live in a culture that is radically individualistic. Uh, so the message of all you need is just you and God is a message that we are very familiar with. I don't need a church. I don't need people. I just need me and God. Uh, you do you, right? These are, these are big statements of our culture. Now, without a doubt, uh, to follow Jesus requires a personal relationship with him, right? Absolutely. But to say that all I need is a personal relationship but I don't need a corporate relationship is actually not even biblical. The Bible tells us that the way that we grow is we grow together. It's Ephesians 4. The Bible says that how do we reach maturity? We do it together. We do it. It's not a solo sport. There's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. We gotta go together. That's how we grow. That's God's design is that we grow together. And when we become radically individualistic, it can prohibit us from the growth that God desires. I'll show you a quote real quick. This comes from a guy named Dennis McCallum. wrote an excellent book called Members of One Another. And in his book, he's speaking about this passage, Acts 2. And here's what he says. He says, so what are we saying for today? Certainly some of the features in this group might be true of quality local churches today, but come on. People disowning their real estate and giving the money to the church, people gathering virtually every day, are you kidding? That would be completely insane. Modern people, they got lives to live, they got things to do. Any group like this that showed up today would be rejected as a cult, pure fanaticism. This is downright weird. It's bizarre. And then he goes on, I love this. Or is it? Maybe our lives are bizarre. Maybe we're the weird ones. Look what he says. <clears throat> in Western cities, many think it's normal to live in a state of postmodern alienation where people may spend a whole series of days and nights without any meaningful human relating. Their conversations may never go beyond the superficial, level one, level two. Rarely or never connecting on a personal level. Modern people see nothing strange about living in a sea of people who have no idea what's really going on in their lives and their closest relationship may be to their pet dog. Here's what I'm saying. Maybe we're weird. Do you think it's possible that God would look at us and he would say, you know what? Actually, what you're experiencing is strange to me. I think when we come across passages like Acts 2 that make us feel a little uncomfortable, I think we have to ask a very important question, and that's this. Are we uncomfortable because the Bible is a product of its time? Or are we uncomfortable because we're a product of ours? Who's the weird one, right? Radical individualism, that'll keep us from it. Here's, here's the last one, previous hurt. Yeah, that'll keep us from this. Previous hurts, pain, definitely. Um, my guess is that in a room this size, that there probably are many of you who would say that maybe you did experience community to some level like we just talked about. And maybe for you, you can think of a time where that happened, a previous church or a previous ministry or maybe even a life group here at our church. But then maybe what happened is maybe someone hurts you, right? And you got burnt and something happened. I don't know what it is. But ever since then, you've distanced yourself and you've walked away from it and, and you've never had it again. You've lost it since then. And, and listen, let me, just, let me just say something on that. Uh, real quick, just by a quick show of hands, how many of you who go here to Grace would say, that you've been hurt by another person who goes to grace. How many of you would say that? Show of hands, moment of honesty. How many of you would say that? Okay, 
So it's not, not too many of us. How many of you who raise your hand would say that the person who hurt you is sitting next to you, by the way? I'm just kidding. Don't raise your hand. That's just a joke. All right, don't do that. Listen, here's the thing. If you didn't raise your hand, I think it means you haven't been here long enough. And I think it means you're probably not connected to anyone in a deeper way because here's the truth, all right? Moment of truth, be real honest. We are going to hurt each other. And if we're gonna be anything like the family that God intends for us to be, we're gonna be in proximity to each other, we're gonna hurt each other because we're imperfect people. You're gonna hurt me and I'm gonna hurt you. I'm gonna let you down. And I'm not saying I want to and I'm not saying I intend to and I hope you don't want to and I hope you don't intend to. But the reality is we are gonna hurt each other because we're a bunch of imperfect people who are trying to follow a perfect God. And listen, if we, can just, if we can just know that and if we can be more committed to our identity as a family of God than to our own personal hurts and frustrations, it's gonna save us a lot. See, because here's what I've, I've seen happen too many times. I've seen people who get hurt and because they don't wanna get hurt anymore and because they don't wanna get burnt anymore, they choose to close down and they walk away. And actually the very opposite thing of what they were hoping was gonna happen, that they wouldn't get hurt anymore, the opposite happens, the opposite. What happens? It kills their faith. And they slip into some kind of dissonant relationship with God where it's cold and lifeless and lethargic and they wither because they're walking away from the very thing that God says we all need, which is family. And I'm just telling you, I just wanna say this, if you're a person who's here today, and you've been hurt or you've been burnt in a previous church or in a previous ministry, and right now you're camping out here because you're trying to get healed up. Can I just say something to you real fast that I think is really important as a, from, 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 your, from a pastor's heart? I hope you hear me on this one, all right? If you need some time to heal, if you're like, can't, can't I just sit here? Can't I just listen? Do I really have to get connected? I'm just gonna tell you this. If you need to heal up, I think there's a time and place for that. I think there's a time when that's appropriate. And so if you're walking out of something that's real hard, I would just tell you, take six months. You sit in the back, you be the ninja. Go ahead, you can do that. Just soak it in. But after six months, you gotta get back in the game again. You gotta get back in. It's like knee surgery. There's a place where you gotta rest, but then you gotta start rehabbing that thing. And you gotta get back on your feet and you gotta work through the pain and the discomfort of allowing yourself to get back to a healthy place because I've watched too many people get hurt and then walk away entirely from the very thing they need the most, the family of God. So personal hurt's gonna keep us from this, definitely. So all I'm trying to say is there's a problem with family and the problem is that it doesn't come easily and it's messy and it's uncomfortable at times. But I think all of that leads to this last thing, and that's this, and quickly, I just want to talk about the power of family. Why would we purposely make ourselves uncomfortable? Why would we purposely devote ourselves to something like this? Well, I think the reason is because of the power, the power, the power of the family of God. Listen, without a doubt, for those of us who follow Jesus, being part of this type of commitment and this type of community is what you need that you probably don't even know you need. It's the thing that many of us don't know that we need, but it's so good for us spiritually. It's so good for us physically. It's so good for us relationally. In fact, the Bible doesn't just teach this. Modern psychology and sociology even teaches this. In fact, I'll just show you a couple things I thought was interesting. I was reading this article by Robert Putnam. He is a sociologist at Harvard. He wrote an article called You Gotta Have Friends. Here's what he said. He said, studies show that Americans are more socially isolated today than we've ever been. Social isolation is, look at this, is as big a risk factor for premature death as smoking. Smoking. 
He says it's, e- it's equal of a health risk factor to be in isolation from other people as smoking is. Well-connected people live longer, happier lives, even if they have to forego a new Lexus to spend time with their friends. I don't know why he picks on Lexus owners, but there you go. All right, look at this one. This comes from uh, an article uh, by Julianne Holt-Lungstead. She is a psychologist from Brigham, Brigham Young University. She said, current evidence indicates that heightened risk for mortality from a lack of social relationships is greater than that from obesity. Smoking and obesity and loneliness, all of those things have equal health effects in your life, which is what causes John Ortberg to say and conclude in his excellent book, it's better to eat Twinkies with good friends than to eat broccoli alone. <laughs> and all God's people said, amen, right? This is why at Life Group, eat whatever snack is out there because it doesn't matter how fatty it is, it's better than eating broccoli by yourself, Right? And uh, listen, here's all that they're saying. They're saying this is good for you and you need it and some of us don't even know we need it. Um, Larry Crabb, psychologist, follower of Jesus, he wrote a phenomenal book I would highly commend to you. It's called Connecting. And in this book, he asserts, he suggests and he asserts that many of our psychological disorders, many of the depression and addictions that we face come as a result and they're symptomatic of something he calls a disconnected soul. Here's what he concludes in his book. He says, beneath what our culture calls psychological disorder is a soul crying out for what only community can provide. And basically what he says in his book is he says many of the addictions and psychological issues and depression that we're facing in our society, we try to medicate. And there's a place for that. There's a place for that. And he even says that. There's a place for that. But he says a lot of it is symptomatic of the fact that we are in isolation from each other. And when we get into meaningful community, it has a way of healing us. I think that's why God made it that way. So it's powerful. Community is powerful, and not just for you, but for the world. Not only do you need this, but others need it. The world needs it. I love how it ends in Acts chapter two. He says, and the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. I think that's important, by the way, because the Bible's saying that what we just read, this isn't just some kind of insider's club. This isn't some kind of introverted, us four, shut the door, no more kind of thing. This is a growing community of people that the world looked at this. They saw this love that these people had for each other and they were compelled to be part of it. Isn't that what Jesus said? John 17, they'll know that I'm real by your unity and your love for one another. And when, and when God's family loves each other this way, I'll tell you what, man, it is compelling to the world to see. People want in on something like this because it's what every human heart longs for, right? And so what we see in the Bible is this idea that, man, it's an uncomfortable family but it's worth making ourselves uncomfortable for because we need it and because the world needs it. I'm gonna ask the band to come up and as the band settles in, I I wanna um, kind of finish with one final thought and then then we'll pray and we'll be done. And uh, it's this, that book I was reading by Larry Crabb called Connecting, he told a story I thought was really fascinating and uh, he told this story about his friend. He had a buddy and his friend was telling him about his childhood and uh, he said, when I grew up, his, Larry Crabb's friend said, when I grew up, he said, I, I grew up in an angry home. It's a very dysfunctional family. Uh, a lot of yelling, a lot of cynicism, sarcasm. And he said that uh, when he was about 10 years old, he said there was another house that was down the street. It was this beautiful house and it had this family that lived in it and the family just appeared to be a really, really healthy family. And all of us know that, that every family is dysfunctional in some way or another, but this family appeared to be very healthy. And so Larry Crabb's friend said, as a 10-year-old boy during mealtimes, Whenever he could dismiss himself from the table without being yelled at, he would leave and he would go down the street to that house 
And if they were eating at that house, he said as a 10-year-old boy, he would go under the porch and he would hide and he would listen to the family that was eating. And he said, and I would close my eyes and I would imagine what it would be like to be part of that family. And he says, the thing that struck him the most is that as he would listen to the family, he would hear the father laugh. He'd hear the father laugh. And he said, it just, it's just something I never experienced before. And I would just sit there and I would imagine what must it be like to be part of a family like that. And I love what Larry Crabb said to his friend. Here's what he said. I asked my friend to imagine what it would be like if the father in that house somehow knew he was huddled beneath the porch and sent his son to invite him in. And I asked him to envision what it would, would have meant to him to be accepted, uh, to accept the invitation, to sit at the table and to accidentally spill his glass of water and hear the father roar with delight, get him more water and a dry shirt. I want him to enjoy the meal. And then he said to his friend, he said, listen, that is exactly what God has done for us in Christ. So some of us come from some pretty dysfunctional families. We come from some pretty broken homes, right? And so when we even hear the word family, we associate with negative connotations. But let me just tell you, here's what the Bible says Jesus has done. The Bible says that God is a perfect father who loves you and cares for you, that he's a father who wants the best for you. He's a father who laughs. And he takes joy in you. Oh, he loves you. He sent his son to come down here and to invite you to be part of his family. And so what you're experiencing here today is you're, you're experiencing a group of very imperfect people who are coming to a perfect father hoping that he'll transform us, trusting that he'll change us. And it's what all of us need and it's what everybody needs. If you're a person investigating Jesus, let me just tell you right now, you're invited. Christ has come to invite you into his family to be his son and to be his daughter. And you can, you can make that decision today. Follow Jesus, become part of our family. You can have a bunch of brothers and sisters. We're all messed up. Welcome to the family. Love to have you be part of it. Let's pray together. But Jesus... We recognize that the uncomfortable family you've called us to is precisely that, it's uncomfortable. But oh my gosh, is it powerful. That's what you want for us, God. And we recognize that you're a good father who loves us, you care about us. We understand that what you give us in the Bible isn't, isn't a burden, it's liberating, it's freeing. It's what we need. And so Father, would you help us to trust you and believe that? God, I pray, I, if I could be bold enough, I even just wanna ask you that what we're reading in Acts chapter two, would you let us experience something like that even here? Would you let us maybe be part of something like that? Would you help us to be devoted that we might experience something like that, God, because it's who you've called us to be. And so Father, I pray that you would even ignite in our hearts a fresh vision of what living life as the family of God could look like. And I pray, Jesus, you would help us to be willing to take uncomfortable steps to experience that. And so, Father, please help us to be blessed for having heard what we heard, and I pray that we'd be changed as a result of hearing it. And we ask these things in Christ's name.